lots of you know that we are in the midst of a series now that we're calling Psalms for the Journey, going through a different psalm each week. We've invited you to pray along with us. The order of Psalms um, is in a bookmark that we gave out a few weeks ago, and also uh, you'll find it in the cap last. It is a great uh, pleasure to share the responsibility of uh, teaching with our really strong team of communicators that we have at CAP. And so it's Peter's turn today. Yay, I know. You say that now. Okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> so lots of you uh, may uh, think that Peter's a new face, so I'm just going to ask him like one or two questions just to kind of for us to get to know you briefly. It's not going to cut into the time you've been allotted. Don't worry about it. Um, and then I'll pray for you. So Peter, tell us, how long have you uh, and your family attended CAP? About eight months, I think. And your whole, just about your whole family is here today. Would you like to introduce them to us? Yeah, we're going to be embarrassed. I'm sure they're so, so happy and, uh, that they're getting all this attention. My youngest daughter, which is our second oldest child, and uh, our oldest son, which is our third child, is here. We have four. The all right, wave, wave, Peter Sally. There we go. So yeah, yeah they're, 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 so you just make sure they're never coming back. Uh oh, so, no. sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> well, welcome to those of you who've not yet come to CAP. Um, okay, so that was a question about how long you've been here and your family. And um, tell us one of the things that you do Monday to Saturday. What, what? So Monday to Saturday, I work for a global IT company where I lead the global alliances. So I have a team that sits all over the world that, that I work with. And so you sit uh, at your computer a lot talking to people all over the world. Yeah. Right. Well, isn't it nice you get to talk to people right in front of you today? That's yeah. a lot better. Yeah. It has been great to get to know Peter these last few months, and I know he's a real uh, great love for God's word and for communicating it. So let's pray in anticipation of what God will do uh, in Peter and, and through Peter today. Let's, let's pray together. Living God, we thank you that your word is also alive, that your word is... Um, inspired by you and is a vehicle that you use through which you transmit truth, through which you bring about transformation and new life. And so we invite you to come and do what you're already doing. Come and speak to us. Come and speak through Peter. For we long to see you, Jesus, and to be made stronger in you and to be made more like you. Open our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear you today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thank you. So, Psalm 127. So, when I first, when, when kind of Kim asked if uh, any of us here could kind of be interested in, in maybe covering a Sunday, I was like, yeah. And Kim said, oh, you know, we'll be basing it on the book, uh, A Long Obedience by Eugene Peterson. And I literally had that book with me at the men's retreat. And I was like, I quickly took a picture in front of the view so she could see that I was actually at Keats. And I sent it to Kim and said, oh, this is my favorite book. Uh, and then the next thing that kind of struck me was that if I'm going to talk about this psalm and we're basing on this book, what is there left to say? Because you know, Eugene Peterson took an interpretation of it, and he's, it's a really good book, and it's a really good chapter on this psalm, but I'm kind of like, what else is there to say? Because I shouldn't just be standing up here kind of reciting what he said. Uh, so that was kind of the, the next one, right? And then I was kind of like, but first, Kim said, can you tell me, what is your favorite psalm you want to preach from? And I was kind of like, no, I should let God choose for me. And so <laughs> that means Kim, and Kim chose Psalm 127. <laughs> and... Uh, so when I looked at Psalm 107, I was like, probably I should have chosen. Right? You know? 
it, it, you see, Psalm 127 is, is an art psalm uh, when you read it. it. And depending on your Bible translation, it can be slightly more art than another translation. And uh, it might upset some people because it would seem maybe somewhat sexist even, right? Uh, the next question I kind of had is that why on earth would people sing this psalm when they're on the road to Jerusalem? for one of their three annual feasts. Like, this makes no sense because it's kind of like when you sing it, and, and when we, we kind of read it later, you'll probably get a little bit of view on if you haven't read it already. Uh, so I dug into it. Uh, and so I looked at the, the Hebrew part of it and the, the words to kind of see if there was any gems in here that, that would kind of, you know, spring to me and, and maybe added slightly more to my confusion, so to speak. Uh, but in another book uh, I've been reading by uh, Eugene Peterson, he stresses in a point about the Psalms, and I think we talked about that last Sunday as well, is the fact that, you see, the Psalms are meant to be heard. Us reading our Bible, that's a modern construct, right? Uh, nobody had a personal Bible until Gutenberg invented the printing press. And the printing press is what the internet is to our day and time, right? And so I had to first kind of get to this point. They wouldn't be reading this, right? Because when you read it, it sounds right. So, you, so then you go, okay, when it's something you would hear, something you would sing, you could think, ah, okay. Now it makes a little bit more comfortable sense because if you sing about God, you know, but you know, parts of the psalm still seems a bit odd, right? Uh, but it's very important to remember that the psalms were meant to be heard. They were meant to be transmitted orally. They were meant to be sung. So what the Hebrews probably would do is that they would memorize them. And they would memorize them fully, not just a script of verse here and a verse there, but all of it. But remember again, there's a difference between memorizing from reading and memorizing from hearing. There's an oral aspect to it. There is a context to it that you don't have when you read it. When you sit at home and you're stressing about, I've got to memorize this because if I don't memorize this verse, I'm not a good Christian. Right? We know that one exists. So, we're going to now read uh, this, this psalm, but at first, the word that kind of came to me when I was digging into the psalm was this, this sense of regeneration, uh, and kind of coming back to the source where life springs from, and when you read the psalm, you're going to like, where did you get that? And hopefully, by the time I end later today, you would have gotten that. Uh, if not, I will slink out the back door, and, and you'll see me next Sunday. But can we go to the next slide? Let's just read it communally, and, and please join in if you can. Uh, and we'll start now. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord offspring and reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Odd, right? Right? So, any kind of impressions, images, a word, a thought that kind of comes to you as you read it? 
Evidently, it's good to have children, but you shouldn't wait until you're too old, right? It's kind of like, what's with that, right? Well, can we go to the next slide? I think first, uh, with this psalm and, 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 and all of the psalms, is to understand that they're anchored in the Hebrews, so the Israelites, right? The Hebrews' understanding and knowledge of who God is, Yahweh, right? So again, as you're moving towards Jerusalem for one of your annual feasts, they go with this anticipation and knowledge that when they're going to worship, they're going to worship Yahweh, the I Am, right? The Creator God, Jehovah Jireh. And there, there will be a host of other names they would know for God. Furthermore, the other aspect is they make their way to Jerusalem and they recite this psalm and they would sing it, ponder it. The communal recollection of what Yahweh has done for them is also very much, and first and foremost at their mind, the exodus, the parting of the sea, manna from, from God, from heaven, the ark, Mount Sion, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, the first five books of, of, of the Old Testament, right? Again, remember, they don't have a copy of it, right? They, because they would have to lock around, you know, some chiseled out pieces of, of rock, no. But they, it's, it, they would have it as a communal experience if they don't remember it fully. Somebody else in the group would. And you can just imagine as people are making their way, whether it's a small group or a big group, you probably be like, somebody will start and go like, Ugh, I kind of, I don't, I can't remember. And somebody else will remember the rest and that aspect of it, right? Uh, I think the other part that then kind of comes out is that in our time, when we read the Old Testament, we read the, the, the Bible, we see that God was faithful even when Israel was unfaithful, right? And I think that's very much also part of their recollection as they make their way, right? Uh, the Bible portrays a God who's loving, who wills authentic relationship with us. It's not a forced relationship. It's not like you must do. But it's something which we enter into willingly. And remember, I don't think you had to make your way to Jerusalem. I'm sure some people made their way there because, well, that's what you do. And you kind of have to. Uh, other people uh, may have been forced. Maybe you can kind of imagine the children. We're going to Jerusalem and you're coming, right? But you, you would have this other part of that anticipation, right? Because you know that when I'm going to Jerusalem, I am meeting Yahweh. And when we've come through our time at the celebration in Jerusalem, when we made our sacrifices in the temple courts, I have been set free. There is no doubt what's serving the mind that when I go there, what I come for, I will get. Now the question to us as Christians today, do we have the same understanding of our encounter with Jesus? Sometimes there's a benefit to legalism, right? It's easy. If you do this, you get that. If you go there, you do that. And we live in a context where we don't have that, right? We try to create it because it makes life easier. But do we have that element? It's very clear to understand. As they sing and as they make their way to Jerusalem, they know why they're going there and they know what the outcome is. There's no doubt in their mind. Some people may go and kind of go like, well, you know, you know. And they probably go back and nothing's changed. If they're super rich and have no care in the world, mm, yeah, well, you know, I never really sinned, you know, so it's fine. But I'm sure 99% of them, when they made their way there, left. Even if they could only afford to sacrifice a small bird 
uh, and not one of the big sacrifices, they would still leave with that sense of regeneration. Uh, Jacques Ellul, who's a French theologian, and this is the sign, the proof that I went to read in college because I can say his name, <laughs> is that the Christian life does not spring from a cause and it moves towards an end. And I think that's actually part of Parcel 1. It says they, the Hebrews make their way to Jerusalem. It, the journey was anchored in what we talked about, this sense of anticipation, the sense of expectation, and a certainty of regeneration, right? So you can kind of imagine that those three festivals every year are focal points of the Hebrew-Israelite life, not just because it's a party, but it's also because when you leave, you can imagine kind of the, <gasps> right? I'm good again. And then, of course, it will slowly change. It will slowly kind of creep back. The kind of the mock of, of everyday life will kind of creep back. And, 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 but, you know, we have a new festival to look forward to. And, of course, for us, this end, we know that today as Jesus Christ, right? That's, 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 we live in the end time, right? We live in that time. Uh, we talk about his coming return, but we are in what actually they're anticipating, right? And, and uh, last week when we, we had a talk, we were given that image of that weekly trek to church uh, in the vein of kind of the Hebrews' trek to Jerusalem. The question is if we see that. Uh, do we have that same anticipation after a tough week? Does church regenerate you, regenerate us? But the other more important part is that you don't actually have to make that trick. The communal part is super important, right? But your daily prayer, and the songs talked about this today in our worship, do you put it in front of God? Or do you still carry it around? I am pretty certain when you kind of dive into the Psalms and the life in the Old Testament is that when they've been to Jerusalem, they left it behind. They had visible signs that that load they've been carrying was gone. We just need to look to the cross. But it's a bit abstract for Christians, I think. It's something I think we all struggle with. Now, let's read it again and kind of look a little bit on because look kind of the structure of the psalm. So we'll go to the next slide. And, and again, the thing about the psalm is that it's, it's, it is uh, it's literature, it's poetry. And, and just notice how... The psalmist uses the words and the images to kind of compare and, and juxtapose uh, the images that you see. Unless the Lord builds, you labor in vain. Uh, there is kind of an ebb and flow in these first two verses, right? Um, kind of what compared the Lord builds compared to kind of what we do and what we try to will to fruition, right? this soccer team has to win, right? Or this company has to succeed. This marriage has to succeed. Uh, my child has to get this grade because they have to go to Harvard. And, and there is this ebb and flow between that tension between what we try to do and what we've kind of done in, in, in the Lord, right? So in the book that Kim told us to read and base, one of the things that Eugene Peters does say is that now, we shouldn't read this and, call, and kind of come to the conclusion that, oh, well, let's sit back and kind of, you know, not do anything and, because God's clearly going to do it, right? That's not the world we live in, right? We clearly know that God doesn't come and build things for us, but he works through us. And, and another part, another book I've been reading as well, talks about this thing that 
mean, as this psalm talks about, it talks about sleep to those he loved, uh, is that actually sleep is really, really important. And if we see sleep as part of a natural cycle of life, as we enter into sleep and we go to bed, God is working in the dark. He's working to make things new, prepare a new day. And you wake up in the morning and you kind of enter into that mystery. So seeing sleep as part of that cycle of being part of God's creation is extremely important for us. And that was something I think that would be a lot more closer to the heart of the Hebrews than to us because we kind of live in a time-defined world. Everything's kind of metric and time-defined and bound by what we need to do. And, and uh, sleep is perhaps not something that's very good because the successful people don't sleep eight hours a day, right? Successful people get up at 4 a.m. and go to the gym. And then they go to work and they're done with their emails by 6 a.m., right? And where the rest of us, like me, I'm still, right, sound asleep. And that's what God is going to say, well, that's not my world, right? Sleep is a rhythm of life. Sleep is life-giving, and we know that, right? If you don't get enough sleep, you can die. You can also not be very healthy if you sleep too much. But natural sleep, when your body tells you to sleep, we should, right? But we've created an economy and a world where we take shots to get more adrenaline so we don't have to sleep. Well, there might be a time for that, but a lot of people don't sleep. Anxiousness is the opposite. We know as well that when you sleep, it's an image of resting of, of confidence and comfort. Uh, anxiousness is clearly the opposite. And just like too little sleep can cause harm, too much anxiousness can shorten your life, can kill you, right? It can lead to all sorts of things. Now, if we go to the next slide, this is where I felt it was really odd, right? Because we can say you can kind of relate to the first part of the, of the psalm. And then it, and you can kind of imagine as people are making their way to Jerusalem, unless the Lord builds the house, it kind of makes, yeah, this is something you would sing as you're on your way to Jerusalem. And then you can just imagine some parent on Willie. Well, children are the heritage from the Lord. And we're like, where did that come from? Uh, and as you read it, it's kind of like uh, children are handed down from God. And, and, and so for us from a Christian worldview, it, I don't think that makes a lot of, uh, makes us uncomfortable. I think that's very much all right. It's a heritage. It, but then you have this kind of warrior language showing up in, in the psalm. And it's like, are children a weapon? Kind of, that's slightly implied here, right? Uh, and then there's a court case. Uh, and if you, depending on your translation, it will not say children, it will say sons, right? So some of us in our modern context, we're like, whoa, what a minute, what about girls, right? Uh, so this translation, the NIV is slightly politically correct. It will say children. Uh, and and uh, it says the court. So in, in, in most of the translations, it would say this, the gate. Uh, and the gate was the gate of the barricades around the city of Jerusalem, for instance, or any other large uh, cohabitation space, right? And that's where you would settle your disputes. You'd meet there, and you would settle disputes among yourself or with foreigners over, over little things. And what it implies here is, again, is that this is an image. It's poetry again. It's an image. Uh, if you have a lot of children, you show up at the court gate with your children. It's a sign of force, a sign of power. And it's part of yeah, that juxtaposition, kind of that ever flow of, of, of the psalm that we see. And it's not perhaps to be taken totally literal. But as, as we know from our time and, and in the past, right, strength lies in numbers, right? 
and, and so does the appearance of might and influence of power. But that's of the world. That's not of God. Right? And, and that's part of the tension of the psalm as well. So, unless the Lord builds it. And then you get these images of what is not built by the Lord. But some of the elements of this could be something that God has given you. So it's about using it wisely, right? So, the psalmist would have used these images to trigger the imagination of, of, uh, of the Hebrews, of course, as they heard that song or they recited it themselves. And I think the last thing is saying, we live in a modern time, we live in a time with a social safety net, right? Uh, but children was an economic reality. If you didn't have children, who's going to take care of you when you got old? Who's going to take care of you if the husband died? Right? So it's anchored in some real, real, real things. That's part of it, as you see. Now, can we go to the next slide? Psalm 127 actually kind of portrays Yahweh as the opposite of Pharaoh. Because the Israelites would know Pharaoh as this slave driver who forced them to build and worked their fingers to the bone. The Hebrews were centered in that total moral framework that they know was given to them by God. About gleaning, about taking care of the weak, taking care of the stranger. This was kind of like if you traveled in that time and you moved from one location to another, people were obliged to take you in. It was just a given. It was a given fact. We see a comparison to this in our Christian ethic today, which is best displayed in the, in the Sermon of the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, maybe even in the Book of James, and some of these early documents that exist uh, for, Christ, kind of for the Christian community in the first century, the second century, like the Didash, which, which you, if, you haven't, if you haven't read it, go and read it. It's on, on, on Google. And we assume that Solomon was the author of this psalm as well. And it's interesting, right, because... Uh, I kind of think that then he may have written this psalm with a twinkle in his eye because Solomon was building this huge temple. And I don't think that's easy. If anybody has people who work for them, if, you're, if you run a business or even if you manage a project, you know, getting people to work in concerted effort can sometimes be a bit of a, bit of a tough job. And Solomon may have found himself in situations where he was kind of like, am I being a pharaoh here? You know, am I driving them too hard to build this thing for God? And so the question is, do, you know, do we fall into that slave driver mentality, whether it's in, in our families, relationships, at our workplace, in church? It may be a good thing, but very easily we can, it can tilt the other way. And, and, and that's where there is a comparison with Jeremiah 22:13, which says, Woe to him who built his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. And so... For them, the worldview is anchored in all of this. And so as they make their way into Jerusalem and they sing, unless the Lord builds, this is what resonates in the background. So after having given some context to, our, to this psalm, what we would like to do is to kind of break into some small group discussions and kind of consider Psalm 127. We'll have some paper and some pens for this little exercise. And you will kind of Maybe you can break into groups of three and five. Come up with your interpretation of Psalm 127, verse 1. And so that verse is, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. And what we kind of would do is that at the end, you can kind of read your interpretation of the verse as an act of your prophetic worship. Because when we speak God's action, God's truth into life, into our community, it's prophetic. 
if you feel uncomfortable, uh, you can just put it, we'll have a basket and somebody else will read it out. But uh, if you could do that, you can write it down. And it can be anything that comes to you, either as a group or individually. Uh, and what we'll do as we end, we'll kind of read it out as, a, as, as an act of uh, communal worship, just much like the Hebrews would do on their way to, to uh, Jerusalem. So I think one of the key takeaways from, from, from the psalm and, and, and the context of it is this sense of anticipation and, and regeneration. And, and if any are kind of struggling to kind of get that feeling and, and sense from the relationship with Jesus, I just want to read a, a verse from Hebrews 1. And it says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So as we leave here today, I think leave with that foremost of our minds, the fact that Jesus is the exact representation of that Yahweh, that I am, that the Hebrews went in anticipation, great anticipation as they went to Jerusalem. And this is something I think that we very easily forget, I forget, day in, day out. But when we come before God, we come before the same I am that the Hebrews went in anticipation to meet.